today's message. We shall be reading from the book of John, chapter 2, uh, verse 23 until chapter 3, verse 15. Again, that is John, chapter 2, verses 23 until chapter 3, verses 15. Please open your Bibles to that portion of the scripture and join me in reading God's word. Let us all rise in reverence to the word of God. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Praise God for the reading of His Word. You may now be seated. Gospel of John. Heavenly Father, May you please forgive us from all our sins. Cleanse us by the blood of the Lamb, the eternal Lamb of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is risen and who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who has authority of everything in time and in history. So Lord, um, thank you for this privilege, despite me being a worthless sinner, allowing me to proclaim your word this Easter Sunday. May you send the unction of your spirit, and may you use me as your mouthpiece in the proclamation of your word. And may the Spirit of God illumine the minds of each one, touch their hearts, that they may deepen their faith and deepen their walk in their Christian journey. I also pray, Lord, that may you teach me to proclaim your word clearly and also 
enable them to understand what I'm about to proclaim this morning. And I give you back all the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before anything else, let me greet you a happy Resurrection Sunday. Happy Easter Sunday. Okay, so happy Easter. So uh, the sermon is entitled, Born Again. How relevant as we celebrate Easter this Sunday. A young, a young Arab was proceeding down the road on a donkey when he came upon a small bird, a sparrow, lying upon his back in the road. There he was, a small skinny object with two thin legs pointed skyward. At first, the Arab thought the sparrow was dead. When he found that the, the bird was alive, the Arab got down from his donkey and went forward to speak to him. Are you all right? He asked. Yes, the sparrow answered. Then what are you doing lying on your back with your legs pointed up the sky? Haven't you heard the rumor? The sparrow asked in return. They say, they say that heaven is going to fall. If it does, said the Arab, surely you don't think you're going to hold it up with those two skinny legs of yours. The bird looked at him with a solemn face for a moment and then retorted, one does the best one can. The folly of the sparrow in the story is only an illustration of the folly of human beings who think they can hold off the divine judgment of God by the skinny legs of human accomplishments and human achievements. According to the Bible, this cannot be done. Thus, the first few verses of John 3 have been showing that no man can please God either by his own achievements, merit, or intellect. Instead, a man must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. At this point, however, Nicodemus asks the question that any, any person might properly ask. All right, you say that a man must be born again. How then is it possible? How can a man be born again? This question, perhaps the most important question that anyone can ask. So the, the third chapter of John gives answers as we study the first half of this chapter. But before anything else, let us finish what verses we left off in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, the Word of God says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because, because he knew all people and he needed no other to bear witness about men, for he himself know what was in men. 
So while the Lord Jesus and his disciples remain in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration after the purging of the temple, he continuously performed many miracles. And John refers to the many signs that our Lord did, but offers no particular details about the miracles themselves. John focused on the nature of Jesus Christ, proving that although that he is a flesh and blood human being, he was also the very essence of the eternal creator. Therefore, John presented only those miracles that best explain the divine nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, often describing events that is not found in the other Gospels. Nevertheless, the impact of the signs in all four Gospels remain. People were drawn, were captivated to Jesus. Because who could do such amazing, amazing things that went beyond the normal course of nature? John tells us that many believe in Jesus because of these signs. Although it is doubtful that they all perceive his true nature. Jesus himself did not entrust himself to these so-called believers because our Lord understood human nature and human frailty as well. Just as Jesus was very aware of his own divine nature, he also knew the nature as well as the motives of mankind. These people believe because of the signs without perceiving the nature and purpose of the one who astounded them with his authority over all manner of diseases and maladies. And later on, in John chapter 4:45, his Galilean neighbors celebrate what Jesus had done when he returns home. It is important for us to see that uh, there is a carryover between the last verse of John 2 and the introduction of John chapter 3. Chapter 2 ends with the words, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. So there follow in John's narrative a series of encounters between Jesus and various people such as Nicodemus, the Samaritan women at the well, and others. So in these uh, meetings, Jesus pierced the souls and the hearts of those with whom he spoke and indicated that he knew what was going on in their hearts and lives. But here we will focus on Nicodemus. So the first part is about a man named Nicodemus. So John chapter 3, 1, 2, Scripture says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So chapter 3 opens with Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. 
it begins by saying, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, in verse 1. So this brief introduction tells us that Nicodemus was a man of high authority in the religious leadership of Israel. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish people, equivalent to the Supreme Court. He is also a Pharisee, a member of one of the Back to the Bible movements that was gaining tremendous popular support in the time of our Lord Jesus. They would eventually be the reformers of Judaism, the religion or the faith of the Jews. Not all of the Pharisees were elevated to membership in the Sanhedrin. Those who served on this council were akin to the senators in the present-day United States of America. Nicodemus was one of these. He is extremely powerful and undoubtedly wealthy man. Perhaps one of the richest person in Jerusalem. Nicodemus was also skilled as a theologian. And, and, and at least he was supposed to be. But in verse 10 later on, Jesus reproached him because he was the so-called teacher of Israel and yet did not understand what Jesus was explaining to him. Jesus implied that these were things Nicodemus should have understood from his study of the Old Testament. It is often preached that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he was somehow embarrassed or afraid of being associated with our Lord in public. This idea does not hold up for two reasons. First, the rabbis usually reserve the evening hours for, for biblical talk or discussion. Secondly, Nicodemus is not a cowardly person. In John chapter 19, 38 to 39, he will appear with Joseph of Arimathea to claim the body of Jesus, thereby identifying himself with a known criminal. This is hardly the behavior of a cowardly man. Nicodemus addressed our Lord Jesus in words that's, that seem respectful. Sabi niya, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In verse 2. Notice the words, we know. At this point, Nicodemus was speaking for himself and for at least some other members of the ruling body of the Jews. He said in essence, Jesus, we leaders can see that you are truly a bona fide teacher. You deserve the title rabbi and we are prepared to welcome you into our club. His opening remark seems to indicate that he wanted to challenge Jesus into a dialogue or as a discourse. Jesus and Nicodemus are here engaged in what might be called an acute power struggle. We, like, we might like it or not, but the two men found themselves on two opposite ends of the spectrum of formal teaching authority within Judaism. So a social challenge be began with respecting the opponent by calling Jesus rabbi. So it's like the meeting of two minds. It's like 
um, when, when you, we usually see two professors talking about issues in the university, in the academe. And uh, the Lord uh, initiated the subject matter of the dialogue or the discourse. Apparently, uh, Nicodemus appears to be speaking for the Sanhedrin or at least the contingent within when he says, we. He speaks for all Jerusalem when he expresses the notion that Jesus must be a teacher from God because of what the Lord Jesus is doing. That is performing miraculous signs that no member of the Sanhedrin had ever done. So in this opening, uh, this opening statement, Nicodemus asserted that he and his colleagues knew something about the Lord Jesus. We know that you are a teacher that comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this was not just a personal affirmation about the identity of our Lord. It was also a theological affirmation. One of the chief, chief functions of miracles in the New Testament was to authenticate agents of revelation, to give a stamp of approval to someone that he is from God. So God attested that uh, Jesus was performing wonders and miracles in order for people to see that he is really an agent of God's revelation. But faith based on signs alone is no faith at all. So in the next part, um, John chapter 3, three, uh, 3 to 8, Scripture says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Amen, amen, or truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Lord Jesus initiated the topic of the social dialogue. How did Jesus respond to this statement? His response seems to be out of nowhere. Did he say, I really appreciate that, Nicodemus. I'm glad you noticed and that you're welcoming me into your club and giving me this kind of encouragement or affirmation. Did Jesus say that? No. Jesus didn't even so much as say, thank you very much, Nicodemus. Remember, he knew what was in man and he knew what was in Nicodemus. So in his characteristic way, he went straight to the heart of the matter or to the heart of the issue. Therefore, he said, truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, in verse 3, these words, yung 
truly, truly would set the stage for what was to follow. So some Bible translation render these words as most assuredly, or I tell you the truth. The translators of the Bible are trying to get the flavor of what Jesus meant when he spoke these words. Truly, truly, or amen, amen. But it's difficult to, to, to do so, to capture the essence in English. The sense here is that Jesus was stressing the absolute certainty of the words he was about to say. The phrase, truly, truly, I tell you, is distinctive to the Gospel of John. It reflects a double, uh, amen, amen, signaling an authoritative pronouncement about to be made by our Lord Jesus. Our Lord's unique and unprecedented way of signaling that He's about to say something of crucial importance. Jesus said, in effect, Mark, or um, Nicodemus, mark this carefully. What I'm about to tell you is the unvarnished truth. Here's the absolute truth. Unless one, unless one, so anyone, any person, is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When Jesus came on the scene in his earthly ministry, he came announcing the radical breakthrough of the kingdom of God. You can read that in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. But technically, the kingdom of God refers in the final analysis to heaven, to the abode where the reign of God is made manifest. Only those who are members of the family of God, those who are members of what Augustine calls the invisible church, those who are truly converted in Jesus Christ, those who, are, who have repentant faith in Christ, will come into that kingdom. Everyone else will miss it. We know this because of Jesus' use of the word, unless. This word ought to get our attention when we see it in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament because it signals a necessary condition, a sine qua non, something that has to happen before some desired consequence will inevitably follow. In this case, the necessary condition is the new birth, and the desired consequence is seeing the kingdom of God. So there's a question about what exactly Jesus meant in this verse. Because the word is used here can be translated begotten from above or born from above rather than born again. However, the significance and the meaning are the same either way. Clearly, Jesus was acknowledging that everyone has a natural birth, a biological birth, but Jesus said that in addition to our natural birth, something more must happen before we can see the kingdom of God, and that is supernatural birth. Jesus said that in order for a person to participate in the kingdom of God, he or she must be born supernaturally. In the 1970s, it was... Charles Coulson, an advisor to 
President of the United States of America, Richard Nixon, who became embroiled in the so-called Watergate scandal. But when he was imprisoned, he was converted to Christ and wrote a book titled Born Again, which sold millions of copies. And he eventually became the president, the president of Prison Fellowship in America, ministry to the, the, the prisoners in the United States. And uh, a few years later, President Jimmy Carter, who's still alive in his 90s right now, immortal din, katulad ni Enrile, uh, revealed that he was a born-again, he called himself one time uh, in an interview, I think, that he, was a born, that he is a born-again Christian. Suddenly, the words born-again became part of the lexicon culture of American evangelicalism. Uh, it became a, nomen a nomenclature of American culture. Many people began to call themselves born-again Christians. Kayo din ba? Do you call yourselves born-again Christians? Okay, dun po galing yun. Sila po nagpasikat nun, silang dalawa. Okay? Pero if you, if, you, if you look closely, technically, that term, however, is a kind of stuttering because born-again Christian is really a, a redundancy. It's like speaking about an unmarried bachelor or a three-sided triangle because all bachelors are unmarried and all triangles have three sides. So the simple reality is this. Everyone who is truly a genuine Christian is born again. Amen? And there are no other kinds of Christian. There's no such thing as a non-born-again Christian or a born-again non-Christian. An unregenerate Christian. Because regeneration is the technical term for born-again. Uh, but uh, there are plenty of uh, unregenerate or nominal church members, we know that, and plenty of unregenerate people who profess to be Christians. But, but later on, by God's sovereign grace, even though they are nominal, many of them will become Christians eventually. So when, when someone uh, says that I'm a born-again Christian, he means that he is a convert, converted person. He's not just professing faith, but he has, a pos he has possession of faith in Christ. So it means that the person experiences a supernatural transformation of his spirit, that he has been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's what it means to be born again, or to be a born-again believer in Christ. So when Jesus declared that rebirth is necessary for anyone to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus was flabbergasted. He replied, and I quote, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's in verse 4. Of course, Nicodemus is not stupid or uneducated. Yet he asked a question that was as crass as it could be. Parang, it goes like this. What are you talking about, uh, Jesus? He asked. Are you suggesting that a man has to enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? What a ridiculous idea that is. 
a deeply spiritual statement by Jesus will always give rise to a profound misunderstanding in John's gospel. Nicodemus' response seems especially dim-witted or what we call obtuse. Nicodemus was stuck. Jesus will attempt to draw him out. Jesus said again, truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 5. With these words, Jesus expanded his first statement. Here he declared that a person must be born of water and spirit. Also, he talked about entering the kingdom of God rather than simply seeing it. Now he was talking about actually becoming a part of the kingdom of God. That cannot happen. Jesus said, unless a person is born of water of spirit water and the spirit okay so what is water in this verse because spirit i think it's easy for us to grasp so there's a this professor his name is rc sproul the late rc sproul he said he meditated on this text for 40 years and yet he's still not sure what this text means okay but um, some people say that it's an oblique reference to baptism. Uh, they believe Jesus was saying, you have to be baptized in water and, and experience uh, rebirth by the Spirit in order to come into the kingdom of God. Uh, but of course, there was no reason for Jesus to expect a teacher of Israel to understand that. Okay. Also, a recurring motif or yung madalas na paksa in John's Gospel is the spectacle of listeners who misunderstand Jesus because they mis mistake his figurative usage for literal usage. That should warn us against assuming that John 3.5 is literal. So I think... Uh, we have to look to the Old Testament use of the word water and the combination of the terms water and spirit to understand what Jesus was getting at. But before anything else, uh, I will just uh, give you some of the views of fellow evangelicals about uh, this phrase, born of water and spirit. Uh, there is a possibility that John chapter 3, verse 5 evokes the water from the rock motif that that would be consistent in the way in which the narratives of the book of moses for example exodus and numbers are often a subtext in john's gospel because we all know that in the earlier parts or in the earlier chapter of john jesus said uh, john said that jesus is the prophet uh, uh, like moses from the start, they thought it was John the Baptist, right? So, some, some scholars believe that Jesus is the rock that was struck in the Old Testament, which has the water from the rock motif. Uh, because also in the Old Testament, later on, 
Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus is the picture of the bronze serpent that was lifted up. So this can be found in the, law, the book of Moses, in Numbers and Exodus, which is a consistent motif in the book of John. But other people, this is a good, uh, I believe this has solid, this, this, this other interpretation has solid bearing, that the water here is the amniotic fluid. You can ask the doctors here. <laughs> so when a person is born in this world, there is a water, right? And that's the amniotic fluid. So that's why the first birth and the second birth, born of water and born of the Spirit. Some scholars believe that. But uh, I believe that uh, uh, the, the waters symbolize the removal of sin. So a washing ritual reflecting the washing of the Spirit. Thus, in the prophecy of Ezekiel, the Lord told His people in Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 to 28, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So the outpouring of the Spirit and uh, verses like this in Prophet Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, in Joel, um, the outpouring of the Spirit is, is, is usually an aquatic metaphor in the Bible, in the Old Testament. So I agree with uh, first-rate Pentecostal scholar Craig Kinnear, editor of the IVP Bible Commentary, and he has also a commentary in the Gospel of John. He's one of my theological heroes. He said that, Water is equivalent to spirit. It, and it, he said that it's a hen diadis in which a spirit is, uh, is, um, is the same word when used with water. So I remember Kuya Ed posted a, a video online uh, which was a, a lecture of uh, Professor Sinclair Ferguson of Westminster Theological Seminary and he was uh, in that video, he's saying that repentance and faith are like hendiades. Uh, it means that they're like two sides of the same coins. Sometimes when you say repent, some Bible writers, when they say repent, uh, obvious na na there is faith uh, that, 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 that is linked to it. So, for example, some, some of the gospel, they just say repent for the kingdom of God is near. But in the gospel of John, John never mentioned the word repent. He, he usually mentioned the word believe. So basically, but uh, they are hendiades. It means that they, they, they come together. They mean the same thing. Like when you say nice and warm weather. Nice and warm. Okay, so they come together. So I believe this is uh, the most appealing to me that uh, the water in the spirit is a hendiadis. Uh, so I think it has parallel later on in John chapter 7, 38, where the, living, the life-giving work of the spirit is likened to a spring or a stream of living water. So, so I think it, is, it has always been the intention of the Lord to wash His people in His spirit in order to cleanse them from their sin. 
In this light, Jesus' statement about water and the Spirit is repetitive, like His truly, truly, or amen, amen. A person must be born of the water, that is the Spirit. The unique promise and provision of Jesus, only He makes entering the kingdom of God possible. So verse 6 confirms that He's speaking of spiritual birth and not uh, the waters of physical birth. So Jesus went on to say to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. No one is born a Christian. The flesh that does not produce redemption. This was a common error the Jewish people made. They thought that because they were Jews, being descended from the Old Testament patriarch Abraham, that they were numbered among the people of God and would enter heaven. Likewise, you may have been born to Christian parents, raised in a Christian home, and gone to a Christian school, but none of those things make you a Christian. Some people think that pastor's kids will learn spirituality by osmosis, but that's not true. Because they're also flesh and blood. Okay? So, all that natural birth has given you is flesh, and flesh of that sort is powerless to enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Unless you are born of the Spirit of the living God, whatever you do in your flesh will avail nothing toward entering the kingdom of God. Finally, Jesus said to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the you of verse 7 is plural. Jesus is addressing Nicodemus and all of his powerful friends as if you, you all should not be... Should, as if you all should not be surprised, what follows is a beautiful play of words that works both in Hebrew and Greek. In Greek, the word pneuma means both spirit and wind. The same is true of the Hebrew word ruah. The spirit, which is like water, is also like wind. You can hear it and see its effect, but it remains not invisible. You cannot see where it is coming from, or where it is going. Nicodemus came thinking that he knew what God was doing by virtue of what he saw in the signs. Jesus is pointing to a vastly deeper, invisible movement of God. He is inviting the old man to enter into the mystery of the new birth. This is an invitation that Nicodemus would eventually respond to later on. But for now, his world is spinning. Last part, uh, you do not believe. I mean, another part is you do not believe. John 3, 9, 12, Scripture says, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know or you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things 
and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus remained puzzled and gave a weak response. How can these things be? He asked in verse 9. Jesus did not immediately answer that question. Instead, he chided or he rebuked Nicodemus sharply for his ignorance. Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? In verse 10, it was as if Jesus was saying, You don't know this? How did you make it through graduate school? This is foundational biblical truth. This is not some mystery religion that I'm giving you or some esoteric truth that only the Gnostics know. I'm telling you something that any knowledgeable professor of the Old Testament should have grasped a long time ago. Why don't you, the teacher of Israel, understand these things? Jesus made clear to Nicodemus that the Old Testament books had pointed to him and his atoning sacrifice he would make for his people. Jesus went on to say in 11 to 13, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. That's in verses 11 to 13. So Jesus further admonished Nicodemus, describing how the action of the wind resembles the work of the Spirit of God. And it's very simple. Nevertheless, Nicodemus was steeped in his rabbinical tradition and his pride tenaciously imprisoned him in ignorance. It is, it is very difficult to continue this dialogue with Nicodemus if he could not grasp the simple truth of the new birth. Frankly, Nicodemus as a Pharisee should have understood the radical new birth which Jesus has been speaking about it is spoken in Ezekiel 36, 26, the one that I read a while ago. It's also in Jeremiah. You can feel our Lord's frustration. He has spoken and testified, but you, the, you, now it's plural in verse 11 once more. You refuse to accept it. He has spoken in terms of the wind and water and birth, earthly images, meant to make clear the truth. Pero it's difficult for uh, Nicodemus to understand. So in verses, John, uh, the last part will be eternal life. Verses John 3 to 13 to 15, our Lord says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So this is uh, in relation to the vision. This is an allusion to the vision of Jacob in Bethel. So in Tagalog, when, when, uh, when he felt asleep, there was a vision, the angels ascending and descending, nagmamanik panaog. In Tagalog. So there is a ladder, the stairway to heaven. 
the famous Korean novella. Don galing yun, yung stairway to heaven. Okay? So Jesus, Jesus is saying, of course, that he is the foot of the ladder. He is the only way, he's the only link of heaven and earth. John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Si Jesus yung stairway to heaven. Don galing yung kanta ng Led Zeppelin. Yung bandang Led Zeppelin. Okay? So, yung Jesus is, is alluding to the dream or the vision of Jacob in the Old Testament. Yeah. And later on, uh, he, he will allude to the serpent in Numbers in the book of Moses. I agree with scholars that this is one of the John's sermonic conclusion, which begins in verse 13. Because we can hear the tone shift to that of a sermon in verse 13. And it is the language of one of his motifs, the ascending, descending motif. We first saw in John 1, 51, before, before Jesus uh, can be ascended, to, or before Jesus will ascend to heaven in his resurrection, John preaches that he must be lifted up first which is always a metaphor for crucifixion. In John 8:28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, our Lord Jesus says. And in John 12, 32 to 33, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Uh, so in John's theology, Jesus' cross is not a place of shame and humiliation. It is rather the place where Jesus is lifted up and therefore glorified. The image here about the serpent comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 21, 4 to 9, in the, in the book of Moses, and the story of the serpents in the wilderness. As the people of Israel were traveling toward the Red Sea, they became impatient and once more began to grumble. They spoke out against both God and Moses, complaining about the manna, saying that they hated it. In response, God sent venomous serpents into the camp. Many were bitten and died as a result. Can you imagine that? So that's that's bad day, no? It's a bad day scenario in redemptive history. If you're afraid of serpents, if you grew up in my place in, in, in Ligaspi, in Santo Domingo, <laughs> There are a lot of serpents there, so I can only imagine. Later on, many were bitten and died as a result. Acknowledging their sin in repentance, the people asked the snakes be taken away. So when Moses came to the Lord, he was told to make an image of a serpent and place it on a pole, telling the people to look at the serpent and they would be healed. It was an image that had been burned into the collective consciousness or memory of Israel. Just as Moses had lit, lifted up the serpent in the desert, in the same way the Son of Man will be lifted up. Uh, like the Israelites in the wilderness, anyone who is willing to gaze upon the cross in faith will be healed. Amen. So John's uh, readers... Ephesian readers would have had a different image in their imagination when they heard of the serpent on the pole. In the heart of the city of Ephesus was the temple of temple to Asclepius. So you can ask the doctors here, Brother Julius and Brother uh, Steve, why the symbol of 
there's a symbol of a serpent in a doctor's pin. So that's the, the god Asclepius, the god of healing. So his symbol was a staff with a serpent wrapped around it. Live serpents were released in the temple at night while the sick were left sleeping on the floor. In the morning, they would report their dreams to the priests who would soon then prescribe a cure which usually included a trip to one of the local bathhouses. We will see the connection here of the water to healing. And John's first listeners would have understood once more that the power for true healing was being reclaimed exclusively by Jesus. So in a nutshell, that's the gospel Nicodemus heard from the lips of Jesus in the darkness of the night. It is the good news that snake-beaten people, people infected by a poison that goes to the depths of their souls, can look to the cross, can look to Jesus and find salvation. Amen? It was the love that God gave His Son, like the Israelites in the wilderness, whoever believes in the Son will not perish, but will live forever. So the bite of the serpent will lose its power as we look to Jesus lifted up on the cross. Hallelujah. So application number one, understand the need. So in the private conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus said, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So paulit-ulit natin tong sinasabi. Kasi this is of utmost importance. So this, there is a, par- a parallel which can be seen in Christ's words in verse 3 and the following verses from chapter 1. So John chapter 1, 12, 13, uh, the scripture says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So these passages draw our attention to important truths about salvation. Number one, God is the one who redeems. Number two, rebirth absolutely has nothing to do with one's merit, virtue, accomplishment, achievement. There's nothing in these, uh, in these scriptures to suggest that man has somehow earned God's favor. To, in fact, to work for God's favor forfeits it. These passages allude to the fact that God is always the one who initiates in saving men. Like Nicodemus, when God approaches us through the various channel at His discretion, we may not initially recognize that the Lord is confronting with our deep-seated need versus simply our superficial questions. The Spirit seems to be at work in Nicodemus, prompting him to seek Jesus. The Spirit is at work in us as well. Realizing this, how will we respond to this absolute truth of Christ's words? No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again, without being born from above. 
So I, I'm a professor of a Presbyterian seminary. So le let me read to you a few lines from Westminster Confession of Faith. hope you don't mind because this is very beautiful. This is about being born again. Okay. So all those whom God has predestinated unto life and those only He is pleased in His appointed time, effectually called by His Word and Spirit out of the state of sin and death, in which they are by nature to grace and salvation to Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away the heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills by His almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. So that's the wonder of God's grace. They come freely, but only because of God's saving grace. So when a person makes a decision for Christ, it's the sovereign grace working in his heart when he does so. So there is a need to be born again, yet that is the will of God and not men. What can we do then? By His grace alone, we can believe that being born again is of God and not of man. So God's sovereignty does not cancel our responsibility to respond to the gospel. The command is to repent and believe in Christ. So as, as believers in Christ, we also have to be persuasive in the proclamation of our gospel. Because some people knowing that it is God who changes the hearts of mind, they became very passive in sharing the gospel. But we have to use the best of our ability for us to proclaim the gospel in a way that they will understand, that they will grasp. So that's our part. That's our responsibility. And uh, if ever they believe, of course, it was the work of the Spirit of God. So number one, we have to see the need. For this to be born again that everyone needs to be born again number two we need to believe in the testimony so according to the lord uh, nicodemus did not accept uh, the, their testimony initially but there is strong indication that he became a follower later on because he buried our lord along with joseph of arimathea but initially he did not accept the testimony but john the baptist the disciples and the lord spoke of who christ is however unlike those who rejected their testimony we believe the testimony of john the gospel of john is a first century historical witness to a historical figure and not only the gospel of john but the gospels of the bible is founded on multiple attestation first-hand observation and testimony so it's eyewitness reportage, testimonial evidence that we have to accept. So we should prepare to engage people about what the Bible says. Some may not believe in the testimony of the writers of the Bible, but since we do, we will engage them like Christ with Nicodemus. May kasabihan, um, sometimes you don't win people by winning the argument. You don't win people by winning the argument. May kasabihan na ganun. 
Pero sometimes, di ba, we can also win people by winning the argument. Kaya nga si Paul, he reasoned in Acts 17 with the philosophers. So there, uh, there are times that you have to do uh, a, a social discourse like what Jesus did with Nicodemus. And there are people like uh, those who are more, more intellectual type who will respond to these arguments. Um, so we can also use that with our classmates or friends in, in work. So, uh, of course, the testimonies of ordinary believers who live quiet lives uh, are also um, effective. I remember uh, our grade school teacher, ni Mark, nandiyan ba si Mark? Uh, yung kaibigan, my, my, my schoolmate Mark, um, my classmate, he was, um, he was a, a godly woman, our uh, grade school teacher, and her testimony of God's grace impacted me when I was growing up as well. And so basically, we can use the testimony of words and also of people. Number three, we have to proclaim the gospel. Judgment is reserved for all who sin, like those bitten by snakes in the wilderness. But God reminded them to look at the bronze serpent, yet He healed them. Our reminder today is the death and the resurrection of Christ. We proclaim the gospel and pray that people will look to Him. If we need to engage others in a social dialogue, we will. Jesus spoke about eternal life through Him, like John and the disciples. Um, we will tell people about the judgment and mercy of God through Christ. Because we know that hell is real. And uh, there is retributive justice of God. There's also mercy in Jesus Christ. So it is our responsibility as people of God, as servants of Christ, to proclaim the gospel to everyone. Because salvation is of utmost importance. So before I close, let me read to you Dr. Ed's um, poetry entitled, Born of God. Nicodemus came in the night. The exchange would have been a sight, a ruler and a Pharisee, but one of those who could not see. He sought for a social discourse. It's about words with subtle force. A custom of intellectuals, learning could be exponential. The invitation was obliged. Christ went first, born again defined. Unless a man is born again, one can't see the kingdom till then. Nicodemus would then fumble. Perhaps his mind was quite troubled. The Lord would press the discussion. It was quite a revelation. Many are like Nicodemus. They cannot believe in Jesus, preferring their ceremonies. The Gospel of John made it clear, we thus believe and we adhere, so through Him we may have mercy. Let us pray. Eternal God, thank you, Lord, for the testimony of John about the conversation with the ruler Nicodemus. 
And uh, this is unique in the Gospel of John because I, I believe it's Nicodemus was uniquely mentioned here with a purpose. And I pray, Lord, that uh, help us to understand the urgency of being born again. And thank you, Lord, because you awaken our hearts to see the glory and beauty of Christ. We do not deserve your love and grace. We only deserve judgment. We only deserve retributive justice. And yet, you showed us love and grace through Christ. And thank you, Lord, because you awaken our hearts instantaneously. That's why we respond in repentant faith in Christ. So I pray for those who are here this morning, those who are listening on YouTube, on the, the website, those who have backslidden, and those who have no saving knowledge of Christ, no personal encounter with you through the Word. May the Spirit prompt them to seek Christ, to look for Christ, to come to Christ this Easter Sunday. And for all the relatives, that, all the family members we have that still have no relationship with Christ, have mercy upon them, O Lord. Transform their hearts, Lord, and use us as the testimony, testimonies of your grace and love and kindness that they will see the beauty of the grace of Christ in our lives despite us being sinful and imperfect. Use our lives and use the gospel. Help us to proclaim the gospel to them in words, even if we are not articulate. Teach us, Lord, what to say and grant us the timing and discretion to reach them. Have mercy, Lord. We need you, Lord, to help us. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. Uh, thank you for this privilege of preaching. And uh, may the Spirit of God work upon each one of us to see the beauty and excellency and to look to Christ alone every second of our lives for our salvation. Because apart from Christ, there's no hope. Salvation is inescapably linked to the cross of Christ alone. We pray this and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.